Uh, good morning. Uh, please turn in your Bibles with me to uh, the Gospel of John. We are going to be in the 18th uh, chapter this week. We're going to start our study this morning in verse 15, having ended in verse 14 last week. Uh, we'll, we'll begin with prayer. We will read the passage under consideration, and then um, we will break down the passage, making observations and some applications as we go. And would you pray with me? Father in heaven, uh, in the name of Jesus, we are asking for the grace of the Holy Spirit this morning as we approach your word. We ask for your grace to understand the scripture before us. We ask for your grace to inflame our hearts, to feel the impact of the word this morning. We ask for your grace, Lord, to move our will into obedience that we would do as your word says this morning. In Jesus' name, we ask for your word to go forth in power this morning for the church that gathers at Yamhill Christian. May the gospel be clearly declared among all the churches that gather on this Lord's day. Pray this morning for you, God, to soften hard hearts and bring the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to those rebels to your will that will be gathered among all the churches that gather this morning. And Father, we do pray for those who are hindered by health or by their occupation this morning. I think of, of Hannah, who's uh, got hit with COVID this week. I just pray that you would continue uh, to help her recover and restore her uh, to full strength, that she might serve you with that strength. We ask, Lord, that you minister to those who cannot be here we ask that you would minister to their souls while they're prohibited from fellowship, that you would return them to your people uh, as soon as possible according to your will. We pray for the Christian church in Eastern Europe this morning, those uh, neighboring countries to Ukraine who are uh, supplying refugees with safe passage, with sustenance, and with shelter. We pray, Lord, that you would supply these, your servants, with strength and compassion as they serve the Ukrainian people. We ask, Lord, that you would have your way in us, in your word this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning? We are reading from the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God from John chapter 18, beginning in verse 15 this morning. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing, warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. 
They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is God's word. You may be seated. This message seems to be a bit in two parts. I hopefully, I, I will try to, to show us how we combine these two seemingly different things going on. But um, as, as, we, as we think about this passage this morning, I, I was thinking this this week. You know, your family, your friends, uh, your acquaintances, they know the details of your life. They know your attitude when you're under pressure. They've witnessed your failures. They've seen when your words and your actions just don't seem to agree. They're aware of all of your past, maybe poor associations. So the question before you this morning is, how do you defend your faith, the gospel, your successes, and your failures, especially with those who know you best? Those who know you at your very weakest points. You proclaim the gospel and they say, but you did this, this, this. But your attitude has been whatever it is. So how do we defend the faith? How do we defend the gospel? How do we defend our successes and failures to those who know us best? I will argue this morning from the text that in the final analysis, the Christian man, woman, child's one defense under examination is their association with the person, Jesus Christ. Their one defense is their association with Jesus. As Jesus has taught, I am to be in them and they in me and in the Father, right? Our association with Jesus is our only defense. That is in the final analysis. Well, as we come to our text this morning, with Jesus having been arrested in the garden, Jesus betrayed by his longtime associate, Judas Iscariot, with a kiss. He's now going to be examined by the high priest. And the examination of Jesus is sort of bookended as we look at, at the at the passage before us this morning with Peter's denial in verses 15 through 18 and Peter's uh, subsequent denials in 25 through 27. Peter three times, as foretold by Jesus in John 13, 37 through 38, uh, he says this, I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter in our passage, denies any association with Jesus Christ. See, to be associated with Jesus Christ could have been very costly for Peter. It could mean 
his arrest. It would certainly have turned out to mean that he would have been an outsider to Jewish life. To be associated with Jesus could mean that he would be barred from the synagogue. To be associated with Jesus could mean that his livelihood would be at risk. His countrymen would not trade with him. So let's take a first closer look at Peter's first denial, verses 15 through 18. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, So also are you not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. There's a little word in this section that you can pass by very easily, and I've passed by it numerous times, but you can pass by this word. But to pass by this word lessens the impact of what's really going on here. And this little word in this section that has great impact to the denial is the word with. In verse 18. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. In the cold night air, they ask him, You're not one of his disciples, are you? No, I am not. I am not with him. I'm not associated with him. In the cold night air, Peter denies his association with Jesus, and rather he takes comfort in association with the officers and servants attending their own comfort near the fire. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of Psalm 1. Psalm 1 reads this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind blows away. So Peter is in the council and in the company, in the association of the unrighteous, of the scoffer of the ungodly as he stands there with them, taking comfort in the same way they are taking comfort, warming himself by the fire. Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon writes this, that Peter was on dangerous ground. When his master was being buffeted, he was trying to make himself comfortable. We read of the high priest's servants that warned, warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. He stood with them, and they were rough servants of ill masters. Peter was in bad company, and he was a man who could not afford to be in bad company, for he was impulsive and easily provoked to rash actions. Does that not describe Peter to a T? He couldn't afford to be in bad company because his tendency and his nature was to be impulsive and to make rash actions. But before we think too much of ourselves here, and too little of Peter, 
I want to ask us to contemplate this. Have you ever taken comfort from the worldly to avoid the discomfort of being the one Christian in the room? Have you ever taken comfort with a bad audience to avoid the discomfort of being odd, of being the odd person out, of being associated with Jesus? Have you taken comfort in that? Have you ever distanced yourself from Christ saying something like this? This is not the proper place or the proper context or the proper audience to proclaim my faith. If I stand with Christ, these people I go to school with, maybe they won't accept me. Now, if we examine Peter, it was Peter who boldly proclaimed, even if I fall away on account of you, even if other, everyone, everyone falls away on account of you, I never will. If he can say that, if he can say that, and he can fall, even the strongest among us can fall as well. If Peter, who confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God in Matthew 16, 16, although Peter distanced himself from Jesus, think about this. Let's not think so poorly of Jesus, uh, of Peter. He at least followed while others, all but John, went home. Although he had started to distance himself, at least he followed. Peter loved Jesus. And for no other reason, Jesus followed him to the high priest. Remember, it was Peter who tried to defend Jesus in the garden, although he did this act in his own flesh. And it was a passionate defense, though, of his Lord Jesus Christ. And, of course, he was rebuked for that. If the bold, enthusiastic Peter is prone to disassociate himself from Jesus, even the strongest among us here this morning are susceptible to that same failure. Let's back up and look at verse 17 and notice the servant girl's statement concerning Peter. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. She's basically saying here, Haven't I seen you with him before? Even though Peter failed, there was something about him, even in that courtyard, even as he was distancing himself from Jesus and joining in with them, there was something evident about him that she said, he's been with Jesus. She could tell that he had been with Jesus. There was evidence that he had been with Christ. If you spend time with Christ, time in a Bible-believing church as a blood-bought believer, there will be evidence that you are associated with him. There will be some evidence that you belong to him. Though you fail, it will become more and more evident in your workplace and in your school that you've been transformed by the presence of Jesus Christ in your life. I would dare say this, that if you are really blood-bought, born-again believer in Jesus Christ, there is no such thing as an undercover Christian. Even if you don't openly confess him, it will soon become apparent that you have been with him, that you have been transformed by him. Now, if this is not the case, if you sense that there is no evidence, that there is no transformation, that, that, that no one could accuse me of having been with Christ, well, this morning I want you to evaluate that. I want you to evaluate that in yourself. 
Is there some transformative work? Maybe I fail at proclaiming. Maybe I distance myself from him. But still, is there evidence? Are there people who are closest to me who go, I don't know what is different about him now, but he's different somehow. I remember when I was working at Fred Meyer, and I had, we had been very blessed, my wife and I, to be in a faithful Bible teaching church for a number of years at that point. And I'm, I'm, uh, I've taken a new position, but all the people around me, they've known me for years. And they're in there. And this one guy who worked for me come up to me and he says, Jeff, there's something different. I said, what? He goes, you're different. You're not like me anymore. What do you mean? Well, you don't tell the same jokes you used to tell. You don't laugh at the same jokes that I tell. There's something different. Somehow, you're better. I said, well, he is better. <laughs> I have spent time with him. And I was praising God as I left that day going, it was evident. It's been evident that I've been with Jesus. Listen to Acts 4.13. And I'm going to read this from the NASB. Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated, untrained men, they were amazed. And they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Do people notice that you've been called out of the world? My old pastor used to ask this question, and I, I love this question. I'm going to ask it of you. If it were a crime to be a Christian, is there enough evidence to convict you? If it were a crime in here, could you be charged? It's always a good, it's always a good question. I, I love that question. It makes you ponder some things. It makes you think, is there some evidence that I have spent time with my Lord? Not that I'm somehow holier than thou, but I have spent time with the Lord, and there's evidence of that time. As, as Peter and John were in front of these men, they observed that they had confidence not confidence in themselves, confidence in the Lord. They had spent time with Jesus. Peter denies Christ the first time in this section, and he's in bad company, and he associates and takes comfort from those who are opposed to Christ. Remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in the first uh, letter, chapter 15, verse 33. He says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Or your grandmother or your parent probably said to you, be careful who you hang out with. You'll be associated with them. You'll be labeled as they are labeled. You will become one of them. Be careful who you hang out with. You'll be just like them. A bad company corrupts good morals. We become like those with whom we associate and we align ourselves with, don't we? And when you think about this, this, this one really hit home with me this week as I, I prayed through this passage. Is, are we only associated with Christ and his disciples for an hour and a half one day a week? 
Is that the limit and the time of our association? Otherwise, we are uh, mired in six days a week taking comfort in our associations with the ungodly in other ways, right? Or is it just an hour and a half, one day a week? Is that our commitment to associating with Christ and with his people? I suppose if I'm going to get through this passage, I need to move on. But I want us to contemplate that. As we think about our association with Jesus Christ, are we nurturing that association? Are we, are we spending as much time seeking the presence of Christ and his people as we spend with other types of associations? Well, now let's turn our attention to Jesus under the examination of Annas in 19. Uh, through 24. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. In today's social media age that we live in, the quick internet access to everything, people's worlds are right out in front of everybody. Their past, their present, is all right out in the front. And I bet you you've seen almost on a daily basis the words of a celebrity, the words of a politician, the words of an athlete spoken in 1994 come back to haunt them today. All of their previous achievements negated because of words they spoke as a young person that they wouldn't speak today as they've matured Mistakes that they made in the past, words they've said. And all of this comes back to them and it taints all of their previous achievements and even may cause them to, ha- to lose their future livelihoods. We see it on, on almost a daily basis. But what I, what I love about Jesus here in this passage is that Jesus can boldly stand upon every word he ever uttered. Examine the words of Jesus. And not one of them could prove to be an error, could prove to be false, could prove to be self-glorifying. Yet for the word of truth, guess what? It's just like it is today. The Jews said, cancel him. There was a cancel culture there as it pertained to the Lord Jesus, wasn't there? Cancel him. He doesn't count. Cancel him. All because he claimed to be the one and only Son of God. Cancel him. Jesus is examined by Annas in what you could call a preliminary hearing. But this trial taking place before the Jews was illegal in numerous amounts of ways uh, that I can't unfold all of them, but I'll give you kind of the highlights here, right? The arrest was at night. 
uh, capital case needed to be tried in the light of day. The arrest was made through a traitor and an informer. There were no formal charges made. The preliminary examination again here was at night. It was by a single judge. And the accused is not supposed to be compelled to testify against himself. So what they're doing here as Annas is examining him is saying, you make our case for us, right? He, they're trying to, to get Jesus to make their case for them. But Jesus knows the law as well as they know the law, right? And better. They will base the upcoming trial on the word of two false witnesses. Matthew 26 58 through 61 reads this. Now the chief uh, priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. They were looking for false testimony. But they found none, though many false witnesses had come forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. See, the Sanhedrin, they knew that Jesus was, to, was claiming to be the unique Son of God. And see, if this wasn't true, here's the real charge, then Jesus was committing a form of blasphemy that was punishable by death. But because of their haste to arrest him, they conduct this trial at night based on corroborating false testimony, and they don't present the real charge. They leave the real questions unasked. And here's the real question that they should have asked Jesus in that moment. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And what evidence do you present that this is true that we might believe? That we might believe you? They don't ask that question. Jesus, knowing that the law, uh, what the law says, he does not testify in his defense. Instead, he answers the question about his teaching and his disciples by simply saying, The word that I have openly spoke stands for itself. Ask those who heard if there's any falsehood in anything I've ever said. Ask of them. Jesus could have mounted a defense, couldn't he? He really doesn't make one, but he, he could have mounted a defense. And what would he have said? I, I think he would have said something like this. According to the scriptures, the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. I was born in Bethlehem. The Messiah was to be born of a virgin. I was born of a virgin. You can confirm this with Luke or Matthew, or you might ask my mom, Mary. Then the Messiah was to be born of the house of David. Well, you can check my lineage either through my mother or through my adopted father. The appearance of the Messiah was to be preceded by a forerunner who was to be like Elijah. But certainly you people recall John's baptism. It was prophesied that the Messiah would make a public entry to Jerusalem on a donkey. Well, you can't deny that fact. Indeed, you just saw me do it. It was prophesied that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and that is just the reason why you have brought me here tonight. And here I am. The Messiah was to be despised and rejected by the leaders of Israel. Well, here I am. I'm despised and rejected by you, and here I am. But I offer none of this. My teaching and my words have been open, and they speak for themselves. Ask those who listened in the synagogues. Ask those who listened in public. 
In frustration, one of the officers, recognizing that they are unable to prod him to accuse himself, strikes him, and they send him on to Caiaphas. Jesus warned the Pharisees in Matthew that they would be judged by every careless word that they spoke. You can be judged by every careless word that you spoke. When I was in the Marine Corps, the drill instructors would correct a person who was like talking so much that they kept digging themselves a hole. You ever been around people who do that? They talk so much. And then if you just let them go and they keep going, they're going to dig themselves a hole. It's going to become apparent that there's a problem with them if they just keep on talking. Well, these drill instructors would, would see a person digging themselves a hole with their words and they would say, you can stand there and appear stupid or you can open your mouth and remove all doubt. Well, when I think of that, I think of Proverbs ten nineteen that says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Our Savior Jesus Christ's words were plentiful and yet without sin. But a good rule for us who are tainted by residual sin in, in us, and if we say we have no sin, then guess what? John will also tell us later in his epistles that we're liars, right? So those of us who have residual sin in our hearts, it, it, a good rule of thumb for us would be this. Let your words be few. It might be, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Maybe we ought to think before we speak. Maybe we ought to ask ourselves this question. Is what I'm about to say correct? Is it necessary? Is it kind? If we're slow to speak, we stand a better chance of saying when examined as Jesus was, examine my words and see if there's any falsehood in them. But if we're always talking, we're going to get trapped by our own words, aren't we? You said, and that proved to be false. If we're thoughtful about our words, we're careful about our words. If we are slow to speak, we have a better chance of standing up against the examination of our words. That we might say, no, you can examine what I said, and there's no falsehood in them. Let's look forward to Peter's final denials. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the priest of the relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. See, you might be thinking upon examination of your own life, on examination of times when you have distanced yourself from Christ, when you've disassociated yourself from Him. You might examine your life. You might be examining it here this morning, and you say, I'm worse than Peter. I've distanced myself from Christ and His people more than I can count. I've not just denied him three times as Peter's done here. I've done it hundreds, hundreds of times. I could never be a disciple of Jesus. I have failed to follow him with my whole heart. Well, though our sin 
often has lasting consequences. Jesus comes to you fresh today, if that's you. And he says this, disciple, follow me now. If you have failed in the past to follow Jesus, if you denied him, if you have distanced yourself in your association with him at times, Jesus would say to you today, follow me now. Follow me today. There will be consequences, but follow me today. Follow me now. Don't be anxious for tomorrow. Today has sufficient trouble. Follow me today. Jesus asked, will you follow me today? Do you love me? As he's going to say to Peter soon, do you love Jesus? Although you've distanced yourself from him, although you've failed to stand for him, Jesus would say, follow me today. Peter's denial was not full and final, although Peter kind of thought it was. Peter was struck, you know, when Jesus, in the other gospel accounts, Jesus comes and he looks at him. Could you imagine that you're in Peter's shoes? You've tried to distance yourself from your association with Christ. I'm not with him. I'm not with him. And as they bring him out and he looks you dead in the eye, what sorrow would have filled your heart in that moment? I know it would just fill my heart and with sorrow. I think sometimes we don't know how to lament well, do we? We don't know how to lament our sin. We don't know how to lament our failure. Jesus would look at him and he would be very sorrowful for this moment. But his, his denial was not full and final. All we have to do is look ahead in John's gospel. Peter here in 18 is denying his association with Christ and he, he's comforting himself with the fire of the world. But in John 21, there's a little fire going on there too as they're cooking up some breakfast. And in chapter 21, verse 15, the threefold denial of Jesus by Peter is overcome by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in a threefold recommissioning of Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter is grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. See, although Peter failed, although Peter disassociated himself from Christ, it is still true that Jesus lost none of them, that he lost not one. He, Peter belonged to Jesus. And he said, no, you are not worthless for ministry because you failed. You're not worthless for ministry. I have ministry for you to do, and I'm sending you out. Do you love me? Yes. Then go feed my lambs. Do you love me? Of course I love you. Then go feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes. You know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Get to work. Do the mission that I have called you to. 
I would ask us this morning to, to ponder this. Do, do you desire to live a changed life? If you do, spend your hours in the presence of Jesus. Do you desire it to be evident that you have been with Jesus? Spend time in his word, spend time in prayer, and spend time with his people. Associate with Jesus and his people, not just as many of, a, of a numerous associations that you have, and, and this is just one that you carve out an hour and a half for every week, but an association with Jesus and his people daily. The idea here is if bad company makes corrupts and makes uh, corrupts your morals, how much more should we surround ourselves with good company? Do not allow bad company to corrupt you by taking comfort with it and comfort with the world. And I would say this, ultimately, ponder this. Do not, do not let your past failures sideline you from the ministry that God has called you to today. Do not let your past failures sideline you. Because Jesus would ask you, do you love me? Follow me. That would be the answer. You belong to him. You say, Lord, I have failed. Then do you trust that the death of Jesus Christ was sufficient for you? Do you believe what, what Jesse shared as we shared our, our assurance of pardon this morning? That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And to do as he did with Peter and recommission him saying, go, do you love me? Follow me. Do you love me? Go do what I've called you to. Do you love Jesus? Well, I'm going to ask you this today. Will you follow him? Will you follow him? When you fail, will you confess your sin, repent, get up and follow him? Will you say, Jesus, I love you today. I want to follow you today. Because today is all we have, isn't it? You can't be faithful for tomorrow. You can't be faithful tomorrow today, can you? You can't, you can't live your faith and trust in Jesus Christ today for the failures you made in, this, in the past. For the times that you disassociated with your, yourself with Christ in the past, you can't, you can't just, you can't do something today that negates what happened. It happened. You have today to follow Jesus. What if you don't make it to your car? What if you don't? Will you follow Jesus today? Will you follow him right now out the door, trusting that if you don't make it to your car, he's got a plan for you? That he's taking you with him? Follow him. Follow Jesus today.